Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Decomplicating Dressage podcast. For those of you that are new here, my name is Jess Gale, and this podcast is all about training your horse in a simple, uncomplicated way. We talk about the theories, techniques, and common problems people come across when training their horses, and we look at exercises you can use at home to improve your horse and your training. We also have a professionals episode once a month where an expert comes onto the podcast to educate us on the facts of nutrition, physiotherapy, rider fitness, shoeings, vettings, and so much more. We also delve into mindset and I give you practical ways to improve your mindset so you're able to train and compete your horse the way you want to. In today's episode, we have the amazing Helen from Rezone Coaching here to discuss competition nerves. Now we've all faced a huge time away from competitions, so it's only natural that we may be feeling anxious or nervous before our first show. Helen talks through why we feel nervous and gives us some really great tips to help us work through it so it's not going to end up affecting our performance. There is so much in this episode and it's been so helpful for me already. I know it's going to be so beneficial for everyone that listens to this. As usual, if you enjoy this episode, then please do share it. You can take a screenshot and then share it to your stories and tag me in it so I can see what you think of them too. Decomplicating Dressage now has its own social media, so you can now find us at Decomplicating Dressage on both Facebook and Instagram. And also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would love for you to leave a review. It just means that more people will see the podcast and hopefully it will be able to help them too. But let's get into it. Right, so welcome back everyone. So today we have Helen here from Rezone Coaching to talk to us about all things competition nerves. It's something that affects so many people, but to so many varying degrees. And with the opening up of competitions and training sessions and everything now, it's really exciting, but we've also had so much time away from competing. It's gonna be really strange for everyone to get back into those whiteboards. So welcome Helen to the podcast. Thank you. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about you about what you do just that they have a bit of an idea and then? Yeah absolutely. So um, effectively what I do is help transform the confidence and focus of riders who 
mainly competes, but I also work with riders on everyday confidence as well. So yeah, and I do that at all kinds of levels from grassroots all the way up to elite. So I get to work with many different riders across uh, all the disciplines at varying levels and with varying goals. So um, some riders are obviously aiming very high in terms of where they want to take their, their careers as riders and other riders simply just want to get real joy from everyday activities because you know riding is what they they kind of work for and what they kind of strive to to be able to do so um it's really about helping them get more enjoyment from from riding so yeah i deal with a lot of different types of uh mindset challenge and and issues along the way amazing so why why do we get nerves at a competition in the first place? Because I know I know everyone's different. And at least from my perspective, I know there's been times where I've competed where I've gone, okay, I quite clearly know, like I might have fallen off a horse in the warm-up, and then it's quite clear then what I'm worried about. But sometimes I find I can be nervous and there's not necessarily a rational, or at least from what I can understand, a rational reason. So why do we actually get nervous at a competition in the first place? Yeah, so I guess there's two aspects to this answer. Um, Jess, I would say, first of all, there's a kind of academic answer. So I'll give you I'll give you the academic sports psychology answer. And then I'll also give you the kind of more real life answer as well. So academically speaking, competitions are set up to be environments where you are tested and where your performance is scrutinized. So um, whereas at home we would uh, refer to the home and the training environment as more of a closed environment because whilst you're learning and you know you're still testing yourself you're doing it in an environment where you're not necessarily being scrutinized but as soon as you go into a competition environment you are being scrutinized and so your performance is open to judgment um, from others and also from from your own perspective as well because you prepare for a competition and then suddenly you're sort of pitting your performance against your own expectations. So from an academic point of view, that's why competitions can cause nerves because it's set up to test you, it's set up to challenge you. And in doing that, obviously it can then cause riders to get anxious and nervous. So that's, so that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is more what happens as a result of that, that setup. Um, which explains nerves. So if you think about it, um, a competition environment that's set up to test and challenge you is also um, going to create some uncertainty because part of the, the challenge is not knowing quite how you'll respond to the, to the test in the environment. So, you know, it could be a dressage test, but it equally could be a particularly testing round of jumps. So it is natural that that uncertainty in the environment causes us to start feeling um, either, you know, a little bit of self-doubt, um, kind of not really trusting our judgment necessarily, um, and to also feel just a bit nervous about whether we can, can you know, fully uh, meet that challenge. So that tends to be what happens is the uncertainty in a competition environment often just makes us start to feel a little bit nervous, but then we get really involved in the story around why we're nervous. And this is something that a lot of us do, and we'll possibly come back to talking about this later, is something called emotional reasoning. So when we feel 
bad <laughs> we assume that the situation is bad and that's the challenge with competitions is that yes they're set there to challenge us but in feeling nervous often we think oh my goodness I feel nervous so the competition must be a bad place for me to be and we start to get increasingly nervous and anxious and worried um, whereas actually if we just recognize that that's a natural part of competing and we just take a step back from that and say that's okay that I feel like this because this is set to challenge me so how do I best meet that challenge we can start to separate ourselves from that emotion but I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit for some of your other questions so yeah hopefully that gives you an idea of why competitions can cause nerves I guess it's normal isn't it like there's so there's so much anticipation and we train so much for those that final four five minutes and so there seems there's so much preparation there there's so much anticipation and then I guess like you say nerves are so normal that I know there's been a couple of times that I felt nervous and then actually realized it's almost been excitement instead it's almost like that yeah. anticipation feeling yeah. instead Absolutely. And actually, um, you're right, there is a build up. And there's also an element of where emotions sit on on the kind of scale, if you like. So if you think about every emotion sitting on a scale, you're absolutely right, excitement and nerves actually sit on the same scale. They're just at slightly um, not opposite ends, but excitement is is obviously a, you know, a positive emotion, but it does require an element of adrenaline for you to feel excited. The problem with that is that that emotion can very quickly, you know, cross that bridge over into the other to the other end of the scale where it becomes nerves and then it becomes at the extreme end panic. Um, because actually what's happening is you've already got a bit of adrenaline going. And so it's quite easy for that extra bit of adrenaline to then start causing you to feel nervous instead of excited. So it is it is important to to recognize that absolutely our emotions are on a scale and there is a tipping point. And is it is it possible that we can misdiagnose our emotions? So is it possible that when we're feeling excited, like do they do they have the same kind of like symptoms, the same kind of reactions, or are they quite different in terms of how you feel? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, excitement when it's about to become nerves can be you know, a, a, a similar experience in terms of you, you might find that your breathing rates um, sped up a little bit, that you, your heart rate accelerates a little. I mean, you know, often we watch cartoons where, you know, a cartoon character sees the, the person they're in love with and their heart starts racing, you know, so there is an element of um, excitement can cause that because obviously there is some adrenaline there. So it can cause similar symptoms. What I would say is when it becomes uh, nerves, it, it starts to really intensify, but you're right. It, it could be possible to misdiagnose excitement because one of the skills I talk about with riders a lot is self-awareness. So it's about being aware of what an emotion uh, means to you in terms of the physical effect that it has. So for some riders, excitement will cause you know, their heart rate to increase. They will experience a similar sensation to nerves. Whereas for other riders, they just kind of have this sort of sense of, yeah, let's go, let's do it. They just feel super motivated and they don't really notice anything massively different other than that they've got more energy so it's a different experience depending on the person so I think that level of self-awareness about what um uh you know emotions um cause you know in terms of different 
uh, physical symptoms is important. So it's important to be aware of what's actually happening when you're experiencing that emotion. So when, if you're feeling nervous, so like if you know, or if I think a lot of our listeners will probably have competitions coming up yeah. and might be thinking, am I going to feel nervous? Will I feel nervous? Or yes, I definitely am going to feel nervous. How do you go about working out why those nerves are there? Like what the root of them actually are? Yeah, so um, I think there are uh, several different causes of nerves. And often when I talk about this um, in my um, workshops that I do, I have a workshop called Compete with Confidence, which is which is now online. Um, but in historically, in, in years gone by, I, I ran it in a in a work in a traditional classroom workshop environment. And one of the things we do in that is we diagnose the causes of competition nerves. And so I tend to break them down into different categories. So you've got the person that is constantly talking negatively to themselves. They're critical, super, super critical of themselves. They make a mistake, they beat themselves up. That in itself can be a big cause of nerves because if you're continually talking to yourself in a negative way and kind of pulling yourself down, as soon as you get put into a challenging environment like a competition, that's only going to intensify the problem. You know, I often talk to riders about um, thinking about competitions as being something that where you need to have a bank of confidence because when you go to a competition you're going to spend some of that that savings that <laughs> bit of money that you've put aside for your confidence you're going to spend some of that and so if you go to a competition with zero balance in your uh, bank account um, you are literally going to go into to self-confidence debt so it's important to have a store of self-confidence and when you are critical of yourself what you're doing is you're eating away at that that confidence each day so that when you do go to competition it's really hard to to um maintain confidence so that's definitely one one cause um some riders have become so um associated in terms of they think about a competition and they automatically feel nervous because over time that's just the the habit that they've got into they've you know got nervous about one competition and they get nervous about the next one and the next one and the next one and eventually what happens is that actually their brain they're no longer actually thinking about the thing that's causing them to be nervous they're just experiencing the emotion because their brains have got used to associating competitions with feeling nervous and it's a literally a physical reaction to to that that situation um and when that happens i call that i call that stage fright because typically what happens for those riders is the nerves can come on really fast very suddenly and very intensely such that they don't feel they have any control over it, over it and they can very quickly and easily shut down so i tend to call that a stage fright where you've got strong physical reactions um, to riders they often talk about you know not being able to put their leg on becoming a passenger just not being able to ride at all. Um, and, and that is absolutely where they're getting these physical reactions from. So that's another cause. Um, and typically relaxation techniques will help with that. Um, you then got um, right, a group of riders. In fact, many riders uh, fall into this category of um, overanalyzing what's going on. So what tends to happen is they're, they're overthinking lots of different things. And as soon as a competition comes up and they're you know, planning towards that, they're already starting to think and think and think and think. And the more thinking we do, 
unfortunately, <laughs> uh, the more we increase our stress level. So if we start overthinking, what's happening is we're thinking really fast, which is increasing our heart rate and our breathing rate, which is then creating stress. So that can be another major cause is doing too much thinking, which can then cause competition nerves. Because once you're put in that challenging environment, any overthinking that you were doing before the competition is then intensified because of that challenge. Um, and then I would say there's the, the riders that um, really struggle with um, not being perfect. So they're very perfection driven, very goal driven, and they see competitions as a pass or fail test. And the problem with that thinking is that it's very, we call it in psychology, either all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking, because you either pass or you fail. It's either a good day or it's a bad day. And the problem is if you go into competition with that perspective, you are instantly putting pressure on yourself. And often when riders talk about not being able to deal with the pressure of competition, it's because they either want everything to go right. They want the outcome that they're focusing on, which is a particular score or to jump a clear round um, or to be placed. You know, so they're very outcome focused. They're very driven. Um, unfortunately, that tends to come along with a degree of perfectionism and very high expectations. Um, and so when you put that into the, to the melting pot of a competition, which has already got some pressure associated with it because it's challenging, what you do is you really up the pressure. Um, and so that in itself can cause, can cause nerves. So appreciate that was a really long answer to your question, but hopefully that gives you a bit more of a picture of, and you know, your, your listeners, um, more of a picture of what goes on underneath the surface of competition nerves. But it's so interesting, as, as you said, all of those different types, all I was thinking was dressage is not set up to like reduce nerves because the whole, at least from a rider's perspective, I spend my whole time training, working out what's wrong and how I can then improve that. So then I'm constantly being self-critical and over-analyzing and trying to work out what's wrong. And then you go to a competition and you're like, this is either going to tell me whether my training has worked or it hasn't. And so I totally get, like I resonate with those first two and that last one because that's what my life is about. I analyze, I work out what's wrong, I improve it. And then my competition is either, yes, you've done it or no, you haven't. And it's that pass or fail. So it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really easy just to label these things as, you know, thinking errors or negative thinking. The problem with all of these things is that in particular contexts, they do serve a purpose for us. Even negative thinking serves a purpose on a very fundamental level. Negative thinking and worry helps us stay safe, it helps us manage risk. So we can't do away with it completely. You know, often riders will come to me and they say, I just want rid of my nerves or I want to stop thinking negatively. And I say to them, well, it's not about ceasing all negative thinking or ceasing all nerves. It's about controlling them. So as long as you are in control of them and they're not in control of you, there isn't really a problem. You know, in order to be a healthy human being, we have to be able to experience the full range of human emotions. And we need to be able to do this, you know, black and white thinking from time to time, this, you know, drive towards excellence, because that's, that's part of what makes us us. It's just making sure that we're keeping it under control so that it doesn't end up being 
our enemy. So it's keeping it under control. So it's serving us rather than us serving it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So then what, if people have worked out kind of what category out of those four that they sit in, what are like some practical things that people can do to help them maybe deal with their nerves? Yeah, I mean, I think I think for the for the people that tend to overthink, and I, I tend to bundle what if thinking in with overthinking as well. So overthinking can be simply overanalyzing, or it can be thinking about all the different scenarios you might end up in. I would say for for those riders that really strongly identify with that, it's about having a clear plan of action keeping things simple. The problem with overthinking is that we tend to not just accelerate our thinking, but we tend to go into the future. So we tend to think about what's coming next, what's coming next, but maybe not what's coming up next in the next 10, 15 seconds, but what's going to happen in an hour's time, you know, a day's time. We tend to do that kind of time traveling. So for overthinking and for what and what if thinking is part of that, what I suggest is riders having a really clear plan of action, um, a very broken down into kind of very manageable steps so that they can think about step by step what they need to focus on at each stage in the competition. And if they do that, then they've got a much better chance of just staying in the moment because the antidote to overthinking and just thinking negatively in general is just staying in the moment being focused on the task in hand and if you can do that you start to eliminate all this other type of thinking because your brain can't do that level of multitasking consciously so if you give it one single thing to focus on on one single purpose it will do that rather than do all the overthinking so that's definitely what to do for for that one um, for the stage one I described as stage fright, which is the strong physical response, really relaxation techniques are the only way to get on top of that. And I would say for riders in that situation, think about when the stress starts, because often it starts a lot earlier than when you think it does, because often riders don't notice their stress level until it's too late, until it's really intense. But if you can get an awareness of when it starts, actually relaxation techniques at the point that it's beginning to, your stress levels beginning to increase, are really effective because it just keeps keeps your stress level under control. So definitely relaxation techniques. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, guided meditations for when you're not on the horse, breathing techniques for when you are on the horse, you know, even just simply breathing in and then breathing out more slowly than you breathed in and just counting, you know, counting in four, counting out seven, something as simple as that um, can just help slow everything down and just get your stress level down. Um, I would say for the, the perfectionist riders, the riders that have got very high expectations, it's about saying, okay, how, how, do I, how do I make sure that I'm setting myself some realistic expectations, particularly in the scenario you were talking about earlier on, Jess, where, you know, riders will be going out for the first time in, for, for some it will be a year, for others it will be a number of months, they're going out to competition and really for 2021, for any rider that I work with right now, all I'm saying to them is think of that as setting a baseline. That's all you've got to, that's your only job in your first competition of 2021 is set yourself a baseline from which you can work because you don't know, this is one of the challenges for perfectionists is in that situation where you've got very high expectations and where you've not been able to compete for six months a year, you know, those expectations are, are building up and building up. And to your point, you've done all this preparation and you just want to be able to go and, and perform at your best. 
But when you're in a competition situation, particularly where you've had um, a break, it's really important just to set a baseline, just to kind of find out where you're at <laughs> so you can build from there. So it's, it's difficult to set realistic expectations when, you know, you've not got much to compare in terms of past performance that's recent. So often I say set a baseline first time out and then start to challenge your views of what's achievable. You know, say to yourself, actually, for the next competition, I'd really love to be placed, but is that is that the right focus for me? Or is it better that I focus on making sure that my horse is really relaxed and focused on me? Because actually, if we do that, we're going to give ourselves a good chance of achieving the outcome we want. So it's about really getting focused on um, outcomes that are achievable and also the process that you go through to achieve those outcomes. So if you can, you know, redirect the, the perfectionist energy from, you know, must be perfect into something else that's more achievable, actually that's a great place for that energy to be. Um, and then I think finally for the riders that beat themselves up and are very critical of themselves, I think, often it's it's useful to tune into that voice and just and just kind of understand what are the loops because often the the negative thinking we do goes around in loops and there are certain things we say to ourselves repeatedly and even just writing that down and examining it and challenging it and saying is that really true though you know riders um might often think to themselves you know i i, I can't do my horse justice or i don't do my horse justice or um you know, I, I, I don't think I'm a very good rider. Well, is that true all of the time? I often get riders to challenge it in, that, in those terms. Is that statement true all of the time? Because it won't be true all of the time. <laughs> so if it's not true all of the time, what, what evidence exists from previous experience that tells you that it's untrue and that therefore there is a, there is a more moderate uh, belief you could have in yourself? Because often riders who are constantly talking negatively to themselves are actually um, destroying quite a bit of their self-belief. So it's about trying to challenge those negative thoughts, get underneath what the what's driving them in terms of the beliefs that are there. Um, and then it's about challenging them and flipping it over to the positives and saying, okay, well, if that's not true all the time, you know, if I know that I'm, I'm really good at um, seeing a stride, well, actually that's something positive for me to focus on so I think for the riders that think negatively that are very critical of themselves it's about starting to find the positives and reinforcing those and just reminding yourself of the things that you can do okay there might be a whole load of stuff that you can't do right now but focus on what you can do as well and spend some time connecting with that even at home and in training just connect with the stuff that you're good at so that you do feel good and then, you know, see the things that you're working on as opportunities to improve and an opportunity to improve is ultimately an opportunity for success as well. I love what you said about the with the goals bit, because I know a lot of the riders that I coach at the moment are saying, and I completely get their point of view because I'm partially with them on this, is that they're going, well, I've been training now for like a year. I've know that I've made massive improvements and now I want to go out and show them and it's like well yes that's really good but also it's not necessarily about you going out and winning it's about you going out and you've made massive improvements on your leg yields so why isn't your goal to try and get that leg yield in the test rather than because you could have Charlotte Dujardin in your test and come second which is just as good as you coming first without Charlotte Dujardin in there so it's that 
I, I personally, for me, I try really hard to not do goals that are score or place focused. Yeah. I mean, I think for some people, it is really hard to let go of that. Um, And for the riders I work with, you know, I, I always work with where a rider's at um, because that always has to be the starting point. There's no point trying to completely change everything that they're thinking and doing all in one go so for me I find I find the find the easiest place to start and for riders that won't let go of the outcome you know won't let go of that but I want to be placed or you know I want I want to come um home uh with a with a score of 70 you know they if they won't let go of that then for me it's about saying okay so in order for you to achieve that score what's important for you to focus on and let's get you focused on that as your game plan not the score because actually if you focus on the things that contribute towards you being able to achieve such a score you're far more in control than if you're wandering around the outside of the arena waiting for the bell to go and you're thinking right well I wonder if I'll get a seven for this movement I wonder if and even during the test I've had riders saying they're forgetting their dressage test and I asked them well what what are you thinking about during the test you know just out of curiosity because most of them have practiced it to the nth degree at home and uh, they'll, often I'll get riders saying to me, well, I'm kind of scoring myself as I go around. <laughs> and I sort of say to them, well, actually, if you're doing that, your focus cannot be on remembering your test. So, you know, we like to think we're great at multitasking, but when it comes to performance of something, um, which requires a lot of our, capac- our mental capacity, we cannot be thinking about multiple things if we want to perform at our best. Um, and that's what riders at the top levels of this sport are really good at doing. They're good at that very laser focus. Um, and it, and it, is, it is hard in the current environment to, to do that because we've got technology that's always demanding our attention. You know, our phone lights up or it pings and we're instantly, whatever we're doing, we're thinking, oh, I better check my phone. You know, so we, we do actually have a bit of a concentration issue, I think, as a society. But I, yeah, I mean, I totally get why riders would want to be focused on outcomes after a year of training and just really wanting to get out there and show what they can do but for me it comes back to to kind of your point around the leg yield you know in order to to go out and show what you can do it's about saying okay so what what do I need to focus on to recreate that brilliant leg yield that I've been um you know able to create at home so it's about saying to yourself what do I need to focus on in order to create a competition what I know I can do at home and I think it's really difficult because, especially in dressage, you've got qualifying scores. So if you want to go yeah. out to the regionals, well, you need to get a certain number of points, a certain number of qualifying scores. But I know that I've done the most awful tests and come out and gone, yeah, that was awful, and got 70%. And I've come out of another test and thought, I've done it. That was the best thing that I've ever done in my life and yeah. get an awful mark. So it's not it's not necessarily what the judge sees isn't necessarily what you're feeling and it might yeah. there's so many different factors that come into it absolutely it is just really difficult because then you're working I swing both ways because then I'm like well you also deal do still need the qualifying scores the points still count and the scores still count but it can't be the sole focus I think is probably no I agree and I think you know this this stuff is always going to be challenging it's you know the the solutions are relatively simple 
but they're not that easy to put into practice. And that's what I always say to riders. Um, and that's why breaking things down into manageable steps when you're trying to change your mindset is really important. Um, and rather than sort of setting yourself absolutes, like I will stop you know, thinking like this, or I will stop beating myself up. It's about accepting that there will always probably be an element of that in play, but it's about, you know, how much of your day or how much of your, your time that you spend with your horse are you beating yourself up? Because if it's, you know, more than 50%, <laughs> then that's going to be having an impact on how you're feeling in general, you know? So that's the general rule of thumb is think about, you know, how often these things are a challenge for you um, and, and use that as the, as the, as the monitor because you're right you know you you can have all the best strategies in the world you can focus you can really you know be at your absolute best and still not quite get you know the outcome that you wanted and that unfortunately is the nature of of you know of the sport so we do have to accept that and in and in you know being able to control how we're feeling and and how we're thinking more and more you know, we can build some resilience to that um, and enable ourselves to deal with that better over time. But it does take time. It's not I think people often think, well, I can just I can just fix it. You know, I can just fix my mindset and it'll all be fine. But this is all about taking small steps. And at each stage, as you progress and you get more confident and you get better results, there's always going to be something that challenges you or knocks you back a little bit and you have to pick yourself up again and that that is the nature of of um confidence but what we want to avoid for people is massive roller coasters you know one day it's amazing the next day it's awful or for them to perpetually be in the cycle where you know 70 80 percent of the time they're feeling um you know they're feeling awful <laughs> about you know how they're how they're riding or you know not really enjoying the experience with their horse so it's about balance so how we've started about this already, but how do you feel that lockdown and obviously we've had so many shows cancelled, so much training yeah. cancelled. How do you think that's going to impact how people's competition nerves are when yeah. we're able to get back out there? Yeah. So I think it's important to say, and I think, you know, I feel it would be remiss of me not to say this, that, you know, the clients that I've been working with um, in the last year have all been struggling with the same things. And I think it's very easy for people to, because we've been in this situation for so long now, for people to think, oh, you know, I'm just not coping well, or it's it's just me, you know, I'm I'm having this, you know, confidence issue, or I'm, I'm not feeling great because I'm, you know, not coping as well as everyone else. I think it's important that we take a step back and look at the, the dynamics in play here, because to feel to feel anxious, to feel worried at the moment, is natural for where we are. You know, I, I won't go into the um, the academics around it, but um, you know, for many many years, it has been well known that a society's mental health, not just individuals, but an entire society's mental health, can be um, can be determined by two factors: social control and social integration. Now, if you have too much or too little social control, that can negatively impact society's mental health. And if you have too much or too little social integration, that can also impact a society's mental health. Now, if you think about the last year, for most of us across the world, um, there has been a lot more social control than we're used to and a lot less social integration. We're not able to meet people. We're not able to have the same connection with people. So that combination of factors is pretty 
toxic okay so the fact that we have all managed to get this far and pretty much continue with day-to-day -day life despite that is pretty remarkable i have to say and the fact that we are now starting to see people really struggling with their well-being at this stage is completely and utterly understandable because this has been a marathon a mental marathon like no other for many people in terms of the challenges this is put on them um the strain it's put on home life for many people as well i mean it's just been really hard and challenging so i think i think it's important to see everything in that wider context of you know to feel anxious and worried and not quite like yourself is normal for where we all are right now so i think that's important to acknowledge because certainly a lot of the clients i'm working with right now some of the you know anxieties and worries that they have are definitely related to the experience of having to be in lockdown you know and initially i just thought you know i must admit i just thought uh, naively that a lot of the mindset issues that were coming out of lockdown were initially down to to your point disappointment you know making plans and them not coming through because most of us as human beings we like to be able to plan we like to have something to look forward to that i think that's why so many people are so you know desperate to book summer holidays because we just want to have something to look forward to to plan for so initially i thought that that was the main impact of lockdown but actually i think because it's gone on for so long um for so many people i, th I think that you know it really has had a bit of a wearing down effect and, and i think it's really impacted people's resilience so i think it's important to see it in that in that context and i think when we look at it in that context i think one of the best things that people can do for themselves right now moving forward and going back out competing is to be kind to themselves you know set expectations you know because there's nothing wrong with setting an expectation a bit lower <laughs> you know lowering the bar a little bit to make it easier to achieve because the thing is if you if you achieve something you know positive uh, from your first outing out how much more confidence and motivation is that going to give you you know often with young horses we're we're very careful with young horses to make sure that you know when we take them out for the first time that they have a good time they have a positive experience so why wouldn't we do that for ourselves you know we're going back out putting ourselves back out there after a year of you know not just not competing and, and disappointment of not competing but also really challenging times for us professionally um from a family and personal point of view you know it's been really tough so i think being kind to yourself setting expectations just a little bit lower and understanding we live in unprecedented times so why would you continue to you know set the bar higher and higher and be hard on yourself when there's been so much that you've had to deal with so i think even just acknowledging that you've come this far that you're resilient that you you know you've you are going back out competing which considering everything that everyone's been through and that you've been able to hold it together to 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 get to this point is is incredible so you know acknowledging yourself for that and then being kind to yourself on that first outing out i think is really important because i think from there you can start to build confidence you can start to feel like you're getting back to normal um i think it just requires a lot of self-compassion to to do that and is there anything that people can do to like prepare for the competitions that are going to be coming up i know you said about mm. thinking about the competitions as a baseline i like yeah. that idea just to kind yeah. of settle yeah. everything down a little bit but is there yeah. anything else that you'd suggest yeah I'd, I'd say for a lot of riders they're going to feel like they're kind of out of routine now because they've not done the things you know 
even just down to basic day-to-day -day stuff, we've been out of routine for a year. So I think even just writing down um, you know, the sorts of things that you were doing a year ago to prepare for competition, just reminding yourself of the routines that you go through to prepare for competition, what you do the week before, you know, what you do the day before, the night before, the morning of, you know, the sorts of things that you were finding useful to, to do on competition day, like listen to some music or chat to someone or not chat to someone, you know, it's different for different riders in terms of their preferences, just reminding yourself of the things that help you to feel settled at competition I think is is really important and I guess having a routine as well because I know that yeah I, I massively benefited from having like a when I go to a competition I do this and then I listen to yeah. this and absolutely happens, and then having yeah. that yeah I guess if that's the routine you did pre-lockdown yes actually going absolutely. out and having that same routine is going to be really helpful to get us back into that absolutely yeah yeah and that's exactly what I'm saying so writing down what were those routines you know the week before the day before the morning of at competition you know what were the sorts of things that were working for you write them down as much as anything else because a it helps you to start getting back into the rhythm of what you were doing um, in the lead up to a competition and on the day itself so it starts to feel normal even though we're not quite back to normal yet and also as well it's a great reminder of to your point these are the things that work for me at competition because it's so easy when you're out of routine to forget the things that were working for you and what you don't want to do is go back into a situation that potentially can make you nervous and not do things that were actually helping to ground you um, so you know for some people it's you know they have different routines they like to tack up in a certain way or they like to you know have gone through a particular routine in terms of you know um how they get ready and how they get dressed and how they you know the things that they do and in what particular order so it is it's as it's as particular as that specific as that um and i think just reminding yourself of all of those things that you do that just help you feel like you're you know focused on the task in hand is is really important perfect so as we kind of come to the end now, is there, I like to ask everyone this because I find it quite interesting. Mm -hmm. If obviously we've, we've talked about so much and there's been so much information, what would be the three things that you kind of want anyone who's listening to kind of take away or do? What do you want them to kind of know about and learn yeah. from having listened to this? Yeah, I think definitely self-awareness it's really hard at the moment because we're under lockdown conditions when when we are idle our default position and I don't mean idle as in not doing anything but as in we're not stimulated enough because there's not enough going on in the world for us really at the moment apart from watching the news and sort of listening to that um but when we're when we're kind of under stimulated our default position is to worry about things. So I think being self-aware, keeping a journal, emptying your head of thoughts really helps prevent overthinking. It helps to get rid of some of the negative stuff that's going around in your mind that you could be using to beat yourself up with. So I think keeping a journal is really important, helps to build some self-awareness around the things that are worrying you that you can then surface and address and challenge. Um, but also, like I said, it just helps get thoughts out of your head and it gives them a, a safe place to be recorded. So definitely journaling to help help with self-awareness and developing that skill. I would say um, the, the second thing is to really practice relaxation, because I think we have all 
suffered in the last year of not feeling like we've got enough quiet space around us um away from you know the the challenges of <laughs> of covid-19 so i think um you know practicing some deep breathing practicing some meditation and just being in the moment i think is really important because when we're in the moment actually that's where we do do our best our best riding our best work so it's just finding that space to just take a moment and take a breath meditate and just be present um, so that would be the second thing. I think the third thing comes back to what we were just saying about um, earlier about goal setting, you know, start thinking about goals. And if you want to hang on to those outcomes and hang on to them for dear life, that's fine. Just start to think about what's important for me to focus on so that I have a good chance of uh, achieving that outcome. Because in the last year, we've got used to things being out of our control our lives not being you know completely within our control our, our wants and desires not being fulfilled and met so i think it's an even more important time now to think about okay what can i control there's a whole load of stuff i can't and i will continue to not be able to control but what can i control what can i focus on um, that will allow me to achieve my goals so you know it comes back to that earlier example you know it could be we'll get the horse listening to me you know, make sure that my shoulders are back, you know, things, tactical, practical things like that are actually really important. They sound simple, but as soon as we get focused on those things, the things that we can control, we actually start to feel more confident anyway. So I think that's really important. Break your goals down into those actionable steps so that you can build confidence. You can feel that sense of control and, and it will give you some protection from, you know, the challenges of being in, in a competition environment. Awesome. This has been so good. I've learned so much. <laughs> if, if people are listening and they want to find you, find out more about you, what you do, where, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Facebook under Rezone Coaching. Um, you can find me via my website, which is rezonecoaching.com. Um, on my website, you'll find links to videos. Um, I've also done a number of Facebook Live uh, videos as well. So if anyone wanted to look up those, they're available on my Facebook page. So yes, there's lots of material out there. There's a blog also on my website as well and a link to my book on Amazon. So there's a whole load of stuff out there that you can read. But yeah, I would say definitely my Facebook page um, I'm also on Instagram um, at Rezone Coaching um, and yeah, my website, rezonecoaching.com. Cool. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Jess. It's been lovely speaking with you this evening. So welcome back, everyone. This week, I wanted to take a look at the term half halt. It's a term that you hear trainers talk about all the time. And as a rider, I am sure that you have heard it a lot. But the problem is that there just seems to be a bit of confusion over firstly what it is and when to use it and secondly how to actually ask for it, what the aids are and thirdly what's the point of it, what does it actually do. Now a half halt can be a fantastic aid that I know I use countless times in a training session as well as many 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 times in a test so it's something that is hugely important and so helpful to add into your training and today we're going to talk about what a half halt is why we need it what aids to use and some common problems that people can come across when asking for a half halt 
So what is a half halt first and why do we need it? So the purpose of the half halt is to rebalance the horse by transferring the weight off the forehand and onto their hind legs. So think of it almost as being a weight, sit on your bum and get balanced aid. Now, this part is really important because what we're going to talk about later on is how there is a big difference between a half halt and a weight aid. So we've got to remember that the half halt, the reason why we're doing it in the first place is to get our horse to rebalance themselves and to get them to take more weight onto their hind legs so that they can lift their forehand up. So this is obviously going to be a hugely helpful tool to have in your toolbox because from the moment you sit on a horse, let's say that's just been backed, we're going to use half halts to teach that horse to be balanced, to teach them to not run through the contact, to teach them to stay and wait with you. Now, we are obviously going to continue using that all the way up to the point where we are preparing for movement. If we need to rebalance them or if we need to keep their energy underneath us. So we're going to use this aid to prepare for a half pass, to prepare for a canter pirouette, if we need to rebalance them on a corner to keep the energy underneath us in the piaf passage. And this is why trainers talk about this technique so much, is because it can be used for pretty much everything that you will ever do in dressage. You can use it for so many different reasons and so many different scenarios. It is so helpful, but only when it is done right. So the problem is that half the time, no one actually explains what the aids for a half halt are, how to ride one and when to actually use it. So you might find as you listen to this, that by tweaking a few things, your half halts could become so much more effective and then hugely change your horse and your riding. So let's look at the aids for a half halt. So this is where it gets confusing because everyone seems to ask for a half halt in a different way. Some people will ask just with the seat, just with the legs, just with the reins, or some people use a combination of two or three of these. Now, generally, I prefer to use a combination of all three because I just personally think that it's always best to try to encourage your horse to balance and react to your seat as much as possible and your hands as little as possible. As riders, we love to use our hands first and then everything else second. So I tend to try to avoid using my hands as much as possible, but obviously when they're young or potentially the horse is a bit inexperienced or just learning the half halt, we might have to use that rein aid a little bit stronger, but we can then phase that out as the horse becomes more established in this half halt. So generally what I will do is I will use all three, but the rain might be my prominent aid to begin with. And then eventually I hope that my seat will then become the prominent aid at the end. So let's look at what the aids actually are. So the seat aids, when it comes to that, there are multiple things you can do. You could squeeze your knees, you could sit taller, you could deepen your seat, you could sit slightly more back. You could push your weight through your stirrups and some riders even find just breathing in helps. With the rein aids, this is basically just applying pressure down the rein. And this is a super common way to ask for the half halt. But if we just do this, bear in mind that obviously we use our rein at the beginning to teach our horse to stop. 
So a lot of the time, if you find that you just use your rein aid, what might happen is that your horse just slows down and doesn't actually take their weight behind and balance. Now, this can take us perfectly onto probably the most common question that I ever get asked about half halts, and that is whether to use one hand or both hands in a half halt. And this seems to have quite a lot of kind of controversy. I've had trainers that have said use both. I've had trainers that have said use the inside and I've had trainers that have said use the outside. So after lots and lots of research and then kind of based off of what I use anyway and what I know works, the easiest way to think about this is to always imagine that half halting with your right hand ask the horse to carry more weight on their right hind leg and then using your left hand asks the horse for more weight on their left hind leg so obviously depending on the situation we're going to want to ask our horse either to carry their weight on both hind legs or on one hind leg so let's talk through we'll talk through a couple of different situations so when we are doing anything that involves a bend circles serpentines half passes canter pirouettes we know already that the inside hind leg always carries the most weight. So if we half halted with our inside rein, we're going to be encouraging our horse to take even more weight on that inside hind leg. And of course, that's going to make that horse more unbalanced and it could potentially cause injury because a horse isn't supposed to carry the majority of their weight on one leg. So if this is asked for, so let's say someone's riding a 10 metre circle and they half halt their horse with the inside rein, generally a horse will react by bringing their hindquarters in or curling their neck in to avoid having to actually put more weight on that inside hind leg. Completely understandable, I feel, but that is what you might find. So we are always going to half halt with the outside rein if we are ever on a bent line. And what I mean by a bent line is anything where our horse has their neck or body bent. Now in canter, we know that the inside hind leg moves much more forward than the outside hind leg. And this doesn't matter whether we are on a bend or whether we're on a straight line. So the horse is therefore naturally going to be carrying more weight on that inside hind leg. So no matter whether you are on a straight line or whether your horse is bending, in canter we're always going to use the outside rein because then our horse is going to carry their weight evenly on both hind legs rather than overloading that inside hind leg with all that weight. Again, riders who use that inside rein to half halt are going to find that their horse curls in, they drop their hindquarters to the inside, or they just find that they kind of curl and bend more to the inside instead of transferring that weight onto that hind leg. Basically just because they aren't physically capable of putting all their weight on that inside hind leg. Now trot is a different story because... Obviously, the same system applies if you're riding a bent line or movement. You're always going to use that outside rein if you are bending your horse in any way. But if you are on a straight line, we're going to use both reins. And this is because a horse trots symmetrically, or at least they should do. So they will carry their weight evenly on both hind legs as they trot. So when we do our half halt, we need to do it with both reins as we want to be keeping those hind legs sitting and pushing evenly. If we half halt with one rein, 
it's going to ask our horse to, again, carry more weight on a certain hind leg, which is obviously not what we want. And it's also going to lead to the horse then becoming more unbalanced. And you can see it sometimes if you watch riders in the warm up or training or a competition and you might see them accidentally apply an inside half halt, let's say on a corner, intra or canter, and you can see that the horse loses balance. And this is just because you're basically making the horse uneven in their hind leg. So the only time that I would ever think of half halting with one rein in trot on a straight line would be if a horse gets heavier in one rein than another. But then we're starting to merge into kind of contact and inconsistencies in the contact. So we're going to stay away from that. But that is the only time that I would ever half halt with one rein in trot on a straight line. So let's look at the next thing. So the next most common question I ever get asked about half halts is, is a half halt the same as a weight aid? So generally we tend to teach this quite a lot and we tend to teach it to young horses kind of before we start introducing collection. We say, can you slow down? Can you shorten your stride first? But basically... The long and short of it is that no, a half halt is not the same as a weight aid. A lot of people confuse the aid for weight or slow down or shorten your stride as a half halt. But there is a huge difference between the two. An aid for the horse to weight involves the horse taking that shorter or slower stride. But the crucial part is that they don't take more weight behind. And that is what would make it a half halt. So... You could stretch a horse, which we do at the beginning and end of a session, and you might find you don't have complete control over the speed. So you might ask your horse to wait or slow down or take that short stride. Now, whilst it might balance the horse because they're taking a short stride, the horse won't take any more weight onto their hind legs. So it doesn't count as being a classical half halt because of that lack of weight going back onto the hind legs. Now, a big thing that people come across is what happens if it doesn't work. So what happens if you've asked for a half halt in the way that everyone's told you to and your horse just doesn't react? Or I get a lot of the time people feel like with the half halt that they feel like they're asking their horse rather than telling their horse. And the thing that I think a lot of people forget is that the half halt is an aid And just like when a lazy horse doesn't react quickly enough to the leg aid, a horse cannot react in the right way to our half-hold aid. But the important thing to remember is that this doesn't mean necessarily that your aid is wrong, but that you need to teach your horse what to do and how to react when you apply the aid. So when we first apply a half-hold aid, our horse isn't going to instinctively know what they are supposed to do. We have to show them and train them what they're supposed to do when we use that aid. Again, like with anything, this is done best through repetition and consistency. If your horse doesn't react quickly enough in a transition, you'd repeat it and perhaps you'd add a bit more leg. And then when they do a nice transition, we'd praise them. And the same applies for a half halt. If they don't react by taking more weight onto that hind leg and rebalancing themselves, We're going to use the same aid, but maybe slightly stronger. Now, I don't necessarily mean you're going to pull your horse's back teeth out, but you could sit deeper and sit taller and take a slightly stronger pressure on the rein before you release this pressure when they react and bring their weight onto their hind legs. 
All we need when we first introduce the half hole is a little reaction, a little more weight on those hind legs and a little rebalance. And then we build on that and ask the horse more and more as they get stronger. A great exercise that you can try to kind of teach your horse the half halt is to ride a 20 meter circle and apply the aids for a half halt. So remember, it's the outside rein when we're riding anything that requires our horse to bend. Then if your horse doesn't react, ride a 10 meter circle. And this will simulate a similar reaction to the one you want. The horse will carry more weight onto their hind legs and lift the forehand and rebalance. But do bear in mind you're going to be adding that little bit more bend into that too. Then you can go back onto your 20 meter circle and ask again. And again, if they don't react in that way, use that 10 meter circle again. So a half halt can be a super helpful tool to have. And once trained and established with a horse can be used to create balance and sit and push in the hind leg, which is the best preparation for a circle, half pass, canterparette, or basically pretty much any movement we ever do in dressage, as well as the perfect correction aid to bring our horse back on their hind legs. It's something that can be quite difficult to teach, but you've got to be consistent with it and really know what you are expecting to happen from this half-fault aid rather than just applying the aid and kind of waiting to see what happens. So I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please do share it. The best way to do this is on social media um, and you can tag me in it and let me know what you think. You can find us at decomplicating dressage on both instagram and facebook thank you so much for listening guys and i will see you next time hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.